Hello, James Scullin here from the Australia China Business Council, and welcome to the seventh episode of ACBC's China Path Podcast. If you've not yet subscribed, please search for China Path Podcast in the iTunes Store to automatically receive a new episode each fortnight. This week, we travel to the spice land of southwest China to speak with Victorian Deputy Trade Commissioner Lisa Rankin and Chengdu on the business opportunities that exist in China's lesser-known regions. From first mover advantage, greater access to government officials, and fast developing infrastructure, we discuss what makes Southwest China different, as well as the opportunities in the health sector, with increasing demand in health, medtech, and aged care expertise, as well as the benefits of Chengdu's high tech zones. Lisa Rankin is the Victorian government's deputy trade commissioner and an experienced international health and development specialist with proven field and headquarters-based expertise in the design. Management, delivery, and evaluation of international initiatives, spanning 20 years and a diverse range of contexts in Africa, Asia, and the Pacific. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Joined here in Chengdu with Lisa Rankin, the Victorian government's deputy commissioner to Greater China. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Lisa. Pleasure. It's good to have you here, James. So, if if I could just start out by asking you, Lisa, what is the VGTI, and and what services does it offer, not only here in Chengdu but also across China? Sure. So that acronym stands for the Victorian government's trade and investment offices, and here in Greater China we have five offices. And at the moment, just over twenty full-time staff based in market. So those offices are spread across Hong Kong, Beijing, Shanghai, Nanjing, and here in Chengdu. Okay. And the trade and investment office network、uh, globally for the Victorian government has around twenty-one offices, five of which are, are here in China. And our responsibilities are to represent the Victorian government in market. And to look at opportunities for Victorian companies and institutions,、uh, in both an export sense here in market, as well as identifying potential investment to come back into Victoria, and that's looking at not only、um, capital investment but also the creation of jobs within Victoria. Okay. We also run a suite of services for visiting Victorian companies or institutions, so we often host. Organisations or delegations, whether they're led by government or not,、um, we do a lot of commercial work with companies、um, here in China looking to invest into Victoria. So identifying potential companies for them,、um, and we also support all our、um, government colleagues travelling, whether they're ministerial parties, premier level, governor level, or departmental level. So,、mm, okay,、um, a reasonably busy job. Right, and 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 and. Within that, what what sectors do you cover of the Australia-China relationship? Is it trade? Is it investment? Is it is it tourism, education? It's a good question. It it's all of those and more. So、um, Victoria has a specialist agency, Visit Victoria,、mm. which takes the primary lead for tourism-related activity in market. So tourism,、uh, sorry, Visit Victoria,、uh, is actually based within our office in Shanghai,、mm. but they also have a representative in Guangzhou. They've recently opened an independent office in Beijing and are recruiting a staff member there, and run with an agency in Hong Kong. So although they sit、um, very much alongside our more trade and investment related. 
portfolio. Yeah. They take, because it's such a specialist area of work, they um, operate quite autonomously in market. With the education portfolio, uh, again, our Department of Education uh, helps to support a number of staff within our office team mm. uh, across three of the offices in China that have specific responsibility for education. Mm. So we have people here in Chengdu, in Beijing and in Shanghai uh, who take a role liaising not only with our department's education team, but also directly with the Department of Education and Training in Melbourne. Okay. And they support the education agenda for Victorian schools, colleges, TAFEs and universities. Mm. The rest of our staff within the network here focus on trade and investment. So some of our colleagues are focused very much on sectoral areas of responsibility where they support Victorian companies, whether they be agribusiness, um, health and medtech, biotech related, um, clean energy related. We have, we have colleagues who support those particular companies in market and we have colleagues within the network who look at identifying Chinese investment mm. um, with a view to bringing that into Victoria. Okay. So it's a very diverse team that we have. If we, um, we don't usually count the Visit Victoria staff members as part of our trade and investment network, mm. but if we did, we'd be close to 30 full-time staff in market. Right. So okay. it's a fairly substantial team. Sure. And so how do you think that compares with other countries over here in China, so countries like the United States, Germany, uh, the UK? Look, that's a great question. To be honest, um, we are probably at a level uh, that is similar to some of the smaller consulate teams. Mm. So obviously at federal level for Australia, we have our DFAT colleagues yeah. uh, in both the embassy in Beijing and the consulate spread out around China. We also have our Austrade colleagues who are federal um, and they do very similar work around the trade and investment space. Mm. And we work very closely with Austrade uh, here in Chengdu as well as across China. So as a sub-jurisdictional government, we are probably, um, we have probably one of the larger networks in China mm. compared to some other countries, all of whom have consular presence, but not all of whom have uh, what is essentially a provincial level government mm. engagement as we do. Well, still there's definitely a lot of avenues for Australian and Victorian businesses to mm. tap into over here. That's right. And the other states of Australia also have a presence here in China. Mm. So Queensland, South Australia, New South Wales, uh, they all have, uh, to varying degrees, offices and teams in a similar way to Victoria, but at, at a slightly less scale. Mm. We also have the, uh, the National Tourism Australia team here in market, and they have offices around China as well. Okay, great. So if, if, if we can come back to where we are now, which is Chengdu in mm. Sichuan province in central west China. Um, Lisa, how does this area of central west China compare to China's eastern coast? Great question. For anyone who knows China, um, I think the, the economic disparity between the east and the west is, is probably the first thing that comes to mind. So mm. China's uh, success story around its economy is well known. But what is perhaps less well known is the diversity in economic outcomes across China. If you look at Eastern China and you look at places like Shanghai and Beijing and, and so forth, there are lots of success stories there around economic development, infrastructure development, health outcomes, educational outcomes, commercial outcomes. There's been a very, very heavy investment uh, in the Eastern parts of China. Up until quite recently, that was 
substantially different out here in the West. Um, infrastructure development and investment, um, economic development, commercial outcomes and health outcomes have all been quite different. Mm. That is being addressed now. Um, there are a number of policies at national level within China that have addressed that economic disparity. And of course, the more recent public um, promotion of the Belt and Road Initiative is another significant factor in the development of the West, um, yeah. given the position out here in relation to the old Silk Road, the old trading routes, and the amount of infrastructure inv uh, investment now coming into southwest China is, is really substantial. Mm. So there are still some differences, um, remembering too that each individual part of China, each province has to some degree some autonomy mm. around policy development uh, and economic policy development. But uh, those those differences are now start the, the gap is lessening, I would say. Sure. Okay. So I was in Shanghai last week where I would say it has probably the largest Australian presence out of uh, cities across China. How would you rate the Australian presence here in central west China and what success stories are there? Here in Western China, as I understand it now, federal colleagues would have much more detailed information than I do about this, but the, the expatriate Australian community is, is quite small compared to a place like Shanghai, as okay. you mentioned. Yep. I believe there's probably less than a thousand Australians uh, in the region, in the southwest China region, that this consulate here in Chengdu looks after. Okay. But again, I, I would leave that for my federal colleagues to um, <laughs> clarify for you. But there's certainly a couple of success stories out here, and I think in terms of the industries that are of most interest out here in southwest China, um, agribusiness is huge. Okay. Uh, the export of really high-quality food and beverages from Victoria is, uh, is a very big market out mm. here. Again, linked back to that question around economic growth, as the consumer base here in southwest China shifts and changes... Uh, their interest in high-quality goods mm. uh, around the food and beverage sectors is growing. And so we're seeing uh, fresh milk, uh, cheeses, fruit and vegetables, for example. These are in growing demand in southwest China. So I think that's a, that's a huge growth potential for this part of the world. But also um, health and, and med tech. Chengdu, for example, um, is about to establish another high-tech zone. Mm. And... They are very, very interested in biopharma, medtech-related initiatives to come into Chengdu, to come into these industrial high-tech zones to establish uh, commercial presence here. So I think there are a number of Victorian companies who might find this opportunity of interest and take advantage of the incentives that exist mm. uh, in places outside of the big cities like Shanghai and Shenzhen and so mm. forth and come and set up in a location like Chengdu where um, they're not competing for airspace in the same way as they are in some of those bigger markets that mm. are very heavily saturated with international community. So is, is, is that high-tech zone similar to a, the Shanghai Free Trade Zone? Does it, does it give businesses tax incentives or are there different regulations in the high-tech zone? There are different regulations within the high-tech zones and there are also incentive packages by local governments. So, for example, um, they might say, if you come and set up your company here, we'll give you rent-free office space for one or two years, we'll give you a tax incentive, as you mentioned, we'll provide um, admin services that are shared amongst companies in the industrial park, mm. 
um, you might not have to pay for accommodation for visiting professors, for example. Right. But each municipality around China is running these um, incentive packages, if you like, to try and encourage foreign companies to come and set up. Really? Okay. There's a big push here at the moment for internationalisation yeah. as part of China's opening up process. And so every province and every municipality has a um, imperative to look outwards yeah. and to encourage um, relationships with foreign organisations, whether they be investment or R&D or export-related. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of initiatives underway at the moment. Now, does a foreign company need a, a partner to get into the high-tech zone or does the high-tech zone provide an opportunity to meet a potential Chinese partner? It can work in both of those ways, as you suggest. So a foreign company can come up and uh, simply establish themselves here mm. as a wholly owned foreign enterprise, okay. otherwise known as a WUFI structure, which is still one of the preferred business structure models for foreign companies here. But of course, the opportunity to set up a joint venture also exists if people have a Chinese partner. Um, but also a lot of these high-tech parks specialise in, uh, as you suggest, James, putting people in touch with potential partners or investors. Right, okay. And so often you see a company, um, they might come up and set up a very small venture to start mm. with, and then over time as they expand their own networks, identify collaborators, partners, investors, and so forth. Okay. So for a company that's never entered the China market, do you think an Australian or Victorian company can enter the market directly here in southwest China, or do you think the company needs some sort of presence first out in the more established eastern coast of China? I think, I think that's a great question, but I think it really depends on the sector that we're talking about. I think there are some sectors where uh, having some credibility, having some uh, track record, if you like, in China is going to be important before you might be able to identify a local partner who's willing to invest, for example. Yeah. There'll be other businesses that that's less relevant for. So, for example, if you're in the business of um, high-tech manufacturing and you're just making a widget uh, of some kind, then it is probably less important for you to have a track record in a particular sector or market in China. It's probably more about your... Um, you know, your quality control measures and your ability to put in place a high-quality manufacturing hub wherever you choose to go. Okay. I think the question around um, Tier 1 or Tier 2 cities is becoming less important in a way in China. Mm. There are a number of cities that are having their status re-evaluated. Chengdu, for example, last year in 2016, uh, has actually been elevated in its status to mm. Tier 1. Okay. So... While you would maybe argue that uh, being situated in southwest China in Chengdu is still not quite the same as being situated in Beijing or Shanghai, mm. in some ways, yes, that's absolutely true. Um, but in other ways, the sophistication of the market here is definitely changing. Okay. Um, so I think depending on which sector you're in and what your business objectives are, I don't think it is necessary for you to have an established presence in a tier one city before moving out or, or down the system, as it's often called, mm. down into tier two or three. I think there are amazing opportunities in tier two, three, four cities okay. that won't be found in a tier one city. Yeah. So, for example, that, that question of airtime, getting access to high-level government officials, um, the incentive packages are different, you have... Uh, the first mover advantage in 
some parts of the market that you simply won't have in Beijing or Shanghai. So there are advantages to coming directly out into a lower tier city. So do you consider tier two, three and four cities still rather untapped or do you get a sense of an increasing level of competition with foreign companies? I think the interest in the China market uh, globally is so enormous that um, to some degree, yes, it is competitive across the board. Mm. However, depending on which sector you're in, there there are still uh, an enormous number of, of untapped opportunities. And I think um, if I can give one example, earlier this year, Victoria... Uh, exported its first live shipment of sheep into Guizhou province here in southwest China. Mm. And this was facilitated by um, uh, an individual who had set up her business in Guizhou and had some excellent linkages within the, um, the business community in both Australia and New Zealand and has set up a fantastic business model uh, that saw that first export of live sheep happen. Mm. We went and visited her recently to congratulate her on, on her achievements and to see what was going on in that particular breeding program out in Guizhou. We were probably, once we got out to the county level mm. where her business is actually situated, which was about four hours' drive outside of Guayang, the capital of Guizhou, we were, I think, the first... Uh, foreign government delegation to visit that particular county. Right, okay. So, yes, it's 2017, and yes, Guizhou is not exactly, uh, you know, at the ends of the earth, but even so, yeah. you can see the opportunity there um, to, as you say, step into a fairly untapped market mm. definitely still exists. Now, if we switch sectors and talk about, um, for example, medtech, biotech, pharmaceutical development... Most Australian companies uh, still look at places like uh, Shanghai or uh, Shenzhen if it's if it's manufacturing base, uh, maybe Tianjin, yep. maybe Wuhan. Okay. Not many medtech pharma companies would know that the Chengdu municipal government and the Sichuan government at provincial level up here have noted medical research and biotechnology as a priority sector in their five-year plan for the province. Mm. There are huge opportunities up here for medtech companies and pharmaceutical companies. But because there isn't a tradition of um, Australian or Victorian company presence up here in southwest China, that's still an untapped market at first-tier city level. Yeah, right. So um, I guess by, by way of answering your question, I think... The market in China is so large and it is so fragmented that there are opportunities at almost every level that you could look for. Mm. I think what is strategic is when companies look at where the existing relationships lie, uh, whether that's government to government or organisation to organisation, where the sectoral hubs of excellence lie. Mm. And in China, those have been mapped out quite well for a number of sectors. And then companies can make a really strategic decision about where they might want to locate their business that is based on the opportunity, the market, the competitive scene, uh, leveraging relationships that already exist and making sure that they're in a part of China where they also get access to the collaborators that they need. Mm, yeah, you mentioned provincial five-year plans. Are the provincial and central government five-year plans over here in China, do you think it's worth Australian businesses to take a look at those five-year plans and understand 
what the Chinese government's priorities are for the next five years and how a company can mould their strategy to best align with it. Absolutely, a hundred percent. What you have to understand in a, in a system like uh, the Chinese government system is although there is a reasonable amount of autonomy as you move out through the, the administrative structure of, of, of government here, is that it's still very much centrally driven. And so understanding China's five-year plan is mm. critical okay. because that lays the blueprint for the entire country, every sector. Yeah. It lays out the priorities of the Chinese government. Then if you're working in specific provincial areas, it's, it's critical to understand the provincial government's own five-year plan because that tells you what their KPIs are. It mm. tells you what they want to achieve in the next five years. And if you can demonstrate that your business is in some way um, going to contribute to those goals or add value to that five-year plan, then you can be more or less guaranteed that you'll get the attention of mm-hmm. officials when you talk about wanting to establish your business, for example, in that province. And so I think um, it would be very wise for Australian companies, Victorian companies, to become familiar with these plans. And we're lucky now that there are English language versions available. Um, abridged versions, hopefully. Abridged versions sometimes, yes. Um, but also well-known organisations like the Australia-China Business Council, uh, you know, offers advisory services and, and has a number of staff um, available to talk people through sectoral-specific five-year plans. And I would really encourage people to do that. Mm. I think it's a very valuable step. Excellent. So you gave the example of sheep exports into Guizhou province. Mm. If we think about Australian exporters exporting their goods over to Central West China, Central West China is obviously more landlocked than the eastern provinces. Is this a logistical concern for Australian exporters? It is in some sectors. So, for example, if we're talking about um, food and beverage and we're talking about things like uh, fresh milk, then obviously having direct flight access is critical. Having your supply chain uh, well-established is critical. Looking at distribution channels and making sure that you have the right distribution partner in place so that you're not, for example, flying your fresh produce into Shanghai but then expecting it to reach the outer regions of Xinjiang within, you know, uh, five hours. So there's a whole heap of interconnected issues here around market access that our... Mm. Our staff within the network, as well as our colleagues back in the Victorian government offices in Melbourne, have a lot of expertise in and spend a lot of time discussing with companies things like, do we have the appropriate protocols in place under CHAFTA to move goods from Australia or Victoria, in our case, um, into China? Are they going to sit on docks? Are they going to uh, meet quarantine regulations and so forth? So there's a lot of relationships that exist between Victoria and Australia and their Chinese counterparts Mm. to make sure that those logistical arrangements are in place. Mm. And I guess Belton Road has a huge role to play as well in linking the eastern provinces to areas like Sichuan and Guizhou and Indeed, indeed. And going back, we were talking before about infrastructure investment in the West. So the the government here has had a, a go West policy for a number of years now and a big part of that has been supporting infrastructure development. So again, I'll go back to the Guizhou example. When we met there with our government counterparts, they mentioned that just in the last few years, Guizhou as a province um, has put in 
between five and six thousand kilometres of rail and highway links, mm. so that as a province, uh, they are now linked to Sichuan, to Chongqing, to Yunnan, to Guangzhou, uh, to Guangzhou, sorry, so that goods and people uh, can flow much more easily than than previously before. There are, there are now high speed rail links mm. between Guiyang and a number of neighbouring cities that mean goods can actually travel from southwest China right down to um, the border area mm. uh, and be in ports uh, in a matter of hours as opposed to a matter of days. So right. all of these things have a flow-on effect, obviously, to, um, to trade and to export, but also to people movement and tourism. Previously, Lisa, you were heavily involved in the health sector, not only in Australia but also over here in China. Certainly, health and medtech is considered a priority by the Victorian government. Would you probably give us some examples of how important that sector really is and what impact Australian companies are having over here in China? Sure. So Australia and Victoria more specifically uh, are really seen as a, as a global leader when it comes to health systems development, infectious disease control, bipartisan policy development. We are seen as one of uh, the world's better examples of a, of a functioning health system. And of course we share lots of uh, similar challenges uh, with China, of course on a very different scale uh, than China. But China, like Australia, has an ageing population. Um, it has a very spread out population, uh, so issues around remote access to health services and a decentralised health system are important to understand. Mm. There are lots of uh, rural and nomadic populations still here in China um, that the system struggles to reach appropriately. Um, but of course, the, the, the offering that Australia has is around our expertise and our skills base. Um, we're seen as a global leader around innovation and R&D for pharmaceutical development and medtech development. We're um, seen as a leader around commercialisation of our IP, which is something that China is extremely interested in learning mm. how to do better. Yep. So it's our, um, if you like, our soft skills, our, our intellectual uh, property and our intellectual offering around health and medical research that Australia offers China. Mm. So if I can give you a couple of examples, Australia has funded at federal level a number of health systems development programs here in China that stretch back decades. Okay. And Victorian agencies have often been at the forefront of those bilateral uh, relationships and programs. So for example, out here in southwest China, the federal Australian government has funded uh, health systems reform work in the Tibet Autonomous Region of China um, for over 15 years and Victorian agencies such as the Burnett Institute and the Australian Red Cross and a, and a range of other uh, experts from La Trobe University have led those programs and that technical assistance into southwest China. Similarly in Yunnan, in Guangxi, in Xinjiang, um, the federal government's aid program to China um, has helped Australia share its expertise around mm. um, hospital management, infection, infectious disease control, blood safety, uh, screening programs for infectious diseases, maternal and child health initiatives, and so on. So in addition to the people-to-people -people skills and expertise transfer that I was just speaking of, mm. um, under chapter 
there are a number of openings for Victorian agencies to uh, engage more directly in the Chinese health system. There's also a large number of policy shifts happening here in market. China has just entered into its second phase of national health reform. Okay. Um, the first phase was focused very heavily on equity and access, and this second phase is now what they're calling uh, comprehensive or deeper health reform. Mm. And so this is looking at how their primary health care system is structured and implemented. This is something that Australia is regarded as being a world leader in. So mm. we are, through our Department of Health and Human Services in Victoria, we've signed a number of agreements with the NDRC here in China, as well as individuals, hospitals and aged care facilities to engage in a process of expertise sharing. Mm. The Chinese government has also lifted restrictions recently on the operation of medical facilities, healthcare facilities. So that is now open for foreign groups to manage and run, which is not something that's happened in China before. So you will essentially see private hospitals being run by international groups. Mm, right. There are also lots of connected opportunities for Victorian groups. For example, in the aged care arena, it's not just the delivery of aged care services um, in facilities, but it's facility design. Mm. So our world-class architects, for example, uh, are increasingly being engaged in China to design appropriate aged care homes and facilities for people. So there's lots of interconnected opportunities for professional services as well as actual um, technical health-related expertise. And also increasingly, um, as the economic uh, changes continue here in China, of course, people's individual income and their disposable income, what, what they have available to spend on healthcare, is changing. Mm. So not just at a government level, um, but also at an individual or a consumer level, if you like. And so the, the average health spend is increasing. And so there are now opportunities for um, Australian innovations in medical devices and pharmaceutical products and nutraceuticals. So Swiss, for example, are another classic Victorian success story here in China. As you know, they're one of the world's largest producers of vitamins and nutrition supplements and so forth. They were recently um, acquired by a Hong Kong-based company, uh, but they retained their Made in Australia, uh, Made in Victoria um, label, and they are now in hundreds and hundreds of bricks and mortar stores here in China, mm. but also perhaps more importantly, selling online through the e-commerce channels. Mm. So the market here in China for high quality Australian um, nutritional products and, and pharmaceutical items uh, is growing exponentially. Mm. Fantastic. So finally, if we could just touch on if a business is listening and is looking to become more engaged over here in China, what opportunities do they have to get engaged over here through the Victorian government? So via our websites, um, people can make direct contact with the China offices um, and our individual staff. People are also often referred in through our colleagues in the various departments back in Melbourne who offer specialist technical advice mm -hmm. and can let people know um, perhaps who to contact here in market. We also run a number of both inbound and outbound trade missions and trade shows, so I would encourage Victorian organisations 
to get involved with those activities. For example, we've just very successfully had the Food and Beverage Trade Week in Melbourne. I think we had around 30 uh, Chinese companies represented who travelled down to Melbourne for that event to meet with potential buyers and partners and so forth. So that's an example of an activity that happens um, in Victoria quite regularly. Uh, we have our invitation program, the VIP program, the Victorian Invitation Program, where we uh, again identify some key businesses from in-market and we bring them down to Victoria to help them showcase their product or their service and introduce them to potential partners um, in Victoria. Mm. There are also lots of relationships to leverage from and I think it's worth mentioning the sister city relationships that exist between Victorian cities and those in China. We also have our two sister state relationships. So um, we're about to begin celebrating the 40th year anniversary of the Victoria Jiangsu sister province relationship. And more recently, last year in 2016, we entered into a second sister state relationship here in Sichuan province mm. in the southwest. So those relationships mean that our very senior government leadership travel. Uh, between the two sites. It means that uh, our Lord Mayor, for example, is in market visiting his sister city in Tianjin. We have delegations led by ministers and by very senior Victorian government officials that bring in companies and, and other forms of delegation to market. So there are lots of opportunities there for companies to jump on board and get introduced to the right people at the right level, which is critical for doing business here in China. Mm, fantastic. Okay, well, it definitely seems like you have your hands full over here, Lisa, in Chengdu. Um, all the best for the future, and thanks a lot for helping us out today. It's my pleasure, James. Great to talk to you. My thanks to Lisa and the team of the Victorian Government's VGTI offices in Chengdu and Shanghai for helping to make this episode possible. For any more information from this episode, please be sure to visit the show notes at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. Now, people tend to hear about podcasts from others, so if there is a friend, colleague or client who may benefit from this or any of our other episodes about IP, market strategy, government support, what happens at a trade show, or interviews with Andrew, Rob, and John Brumby on Chapter, please do pass on the podcast. Until next time, zai jian. <laughs>